You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 176, Sinking the Randolph. I've been neglecting the Continental Navy for some time now. My last episode on the topic was episode 137, when Lambert Wicks raided ships around the British Isles. Off the North American coast, the British Navy continued to dominate the seas without any serious challenge until the French Navy arrived. After its first raid on the Bahamas in early 1776, the Continental Navy accomplished little more than raiding unprotected merchant vessels carrying goods to the British Army, or maybe going after the occasional smaller Navy ship when the opportunity presented itself. Much of the Continental Fleet was bottled up in Rhode Island, trapped there by the British fleet. You may recall from back in episode 84 that Commodore Isaac Hopkins headed the Continental Navy. It was his fleet that was trapped in Narragansett Bay for many months by the British fleet. Hopkins had come under heavy criticism for his failure to leave the bay before the British arrived and for his refusal to attempt an engagement with the British. Congress had never really gotten to like Hopkins. They had censored him in 1776 for his failure to obey the instructions that they had given him to attack the British Navy at that time. Instead, Hopkins had sailed off with his fleet to the Bahamas. Now, never mind that the orders would have been suicide. Congress censored the Commodore, but then allowed him to continue in his command. By early 1777, many were calling for Hopkins's removal from command of the Navy. In February, several of his officers referred charges against Hopkins to the Continental Congress. Some of the charges seem rather silly. They included swearing and speaking ill of Congress's Maritime Committee. I know it's, it's hard to imagine a sailor who actually swears. Even during the Revolutionary War era, it was quite common and did not ordinarily result in formal charges, especially against a top-ranking officer. Similarly, many other officers made derogatory remarks about Congress and the Maritime Committee, and probably deservedly so. So, the fact that Hopkins did that did not seem particularly outlandish either. But Congress did take these charges seriously and pursued them. Other charges were a little more serious, such as the abuse of prisoners of war. Although under scrutiny, the complaints did not note a departure from the way other ship commanders treated prisoners at the time who were unwilling to serve aboard ship. The other major complaint was the Commodore's failure to recruit sailors for the fleet. It was a fact that the Navy didn't have enough recruits. The biggest problem was that the states had granted letters of mark to thousands of privateer ships. Any competent sailor would earn far more on a privateer vessel and would not be subject to as severe discipline. So the Navy was simply unable to compete for recruits. In short, Congress wanted a miracle worker and Hopkins wasn't performing any miracles. In response to the charges against him, Hopkins had one of the officers who had brought charges to Congress's attention arrested. 
Lieutenant Richard Marvin faced a court-martial as a result of the charges he sent to Congress. In April, the court-martial found Marvin guilty and dishonorably discharged him from the service. Hopkins did not yet know it by the time the court-martial rendered its verdict on Marvin, but Congress had already suspended his service. In March, the Continental Congress began hearings, while it was still in Philadelphia, on charges against Hopkins without informing him that the procedures had begun. On March 26th, Congress suspended Hopkins from service without giving him an opportunity to defend himself. It took several weeks for the Commodore to learn of Congress's decision. Isaac Hopkins had received his command probably largely due to the support of his brother, Stephen Hopkins, who was at the time a delegate to the Continental Congress. Stephen had left Congress in September 1776, shortly after Congress had censored Isak for his failure to follow Congress's instructions on his first mission. Stevenson's resignation was purportedly for health reasons. He was suffering from trembling hands, what was at the time called a palsy. It's not clear, though, if the actions against his brother may have also been a contributing factor in his decision to resign from Congress. However, his departure did leave Isak without a friend in Congress. After Congress suspended him in March 1777, one would expect that he would have traveled to Philadelphia to confront these charges personally. We don't know exactly why, but Isak opted not to do this. Very likely, the reason was that he did not think he would get a fair hearing before Congress. On January 2, 1778, Congress formally dismissed Hopkins from service without ever granting him a hearing in person or even requesting his presence to discuss the charges. Hopkins responded by bringing a libel suit against his accusers for defamation. The defamation trial took place later in 1778 with a jury verdict for the defendants. Hopkins was ordered to pay costs. Even so, Hopkins retained his popularity locally in Rhode Island. He was elected to the Rhode Island legislature, where he served on the state's war committee. After Hopkins' departure, Congress did not bother to name a new commander of the Continental Navy. Instead, the Maritime Committee issued orders directly to ship captains or just gave them a fair amount of discretion to go do whatever they could. By the time of Hopkins' removal from office in January 1778, John Adams was long gone from Congress himself. He had taken leave in early November of 1777 to return home to Massachusetts. The congressional service was pretty grueling and did not even pay enough to cover his personal expenses while he was serving. After two and a half years of service, Adams had had enough. He returned home and resumed the private practice of law. Before he left Congress to go home, his colleagues suggested that they might need him to go serve in France. Silas Dean was being recalled, Benjamin Franklin was old and could possibly fall ill, and nobody really trusted Arthur Lee. Adams's fellow delegates believed that they needed him to fill this important role in Paris. Adams, though, demurred. He did not speak French, and he was one of the least diplomatic delegates already. Serving as an ambassador to France 
would certainly not play to his strength. After returning home, though, Adams received notice that Congress had appointed him anyway. He could have refused the appointment. Thomas Jefferson had refused the same appointment a year earlier. But Adams believed that his services were important to the cause. Besides, his return home was hurting his public reputation. Rumors began to spread that he had been forced to leave Congress. Failure to accept this position might hurt his public reputation further. So, in February 1778, Adams boarded the Navy ship Boston, captained by Samuel Tucker. Adams opted to leave his wife, Abigail, and his young children on the farm in Massachusetts. Congress would not pay for his family's expenses, only his. Adams also thought that the journey would be too difficult and dangerous. Besides, he needed Abigail to continue running the family farm. Instead, he only took his oldest son, 10-year-old John Quincy Adams, who would serve as his personal aide. Also aboard the ship were two other young men. William Vernon Jr. was a recent college graduate and the son of a member of the Maritime Committee. Vernon was headed to France to start a career in international trade. Joining them aboard ship was Jesse Dean, the 11-year-old son of Silas Dean, the man that Adams was to replace. So Adams had to take responsibility for the three young men during this voyage. The Boston was a pretty decently sized ship, at least by Continental Navy standards. It had 30 guns, although Adams thought it had too many guns for the size of the ship. And Adams was never shy about expressing his opinions to anyone. He peppered Captain Tucker with suggestions about ship discipline, cleanliness, organization, and a host of other things. Since Adams was a VIP, Tucker had to do his best to accommodate and comply with Adams's many suggestions. Now, Adams, who had never even been to sea before, also got rather seasick for much of the journey. The ship did have to outrun a few British warships during the crossing. Tucker debated fighting them. However, his priority was to get Adams safely to France. Therefore, he avoided any combat. Following his trip, Captain Tucker would command the Boston for several more years, capturing numerous prizes and doing battle with the British Navy. So his avoidance of a fight on this trip was due to his duty to his VIP passenger and not out of any desire to avoid combat. When the Boston got closer to the French coast, it came across a British privateer, the Martha, which was a smaller 14-gun ship. With Adams's permission, the Boston captured the ship and took it as a prize. A few hours later, the Boston chased down another merchant ship, although this one turned out to be French. Before they realized that, the Boston fired a warning shot, which resulted in the cannon exploding. Adams had to help carry an injured lieutenant below deck for surgery and held him down while the surgeon amputated the young officer's leg. Despite their efforts, the man died a week later. As they approached the French coast, the Boston came within range of two large British men of war. Everyone feared capture, but the ships did not attack. Instead, they simply sailed on past them in the other direction. A few days later, 
a local French pilot informed the men that France and Britain had gone to war only four days earlier. By the last week of March, Adams was safely ashore in France. Now, the French public welcomed Adams and his party enthusiastically. War had just begun, and everyone was still caught up in the thrill of fighting for American liberty. Adams and his men were toasted and feted wherever they went. The thing that irked him most was that everyone kept confusing him with his cousin, Samuel Adams. Adams made his way by coach to Paris in a mere four days. There he met up with the rest of the American commissioners and immediately got caught up in all the internal dissension between Lee, Franklin, Dean, and Izzard. And that'll probably be a topic of a future episode. For now, it was enough that John Adams arrived in France and made his introductions to the Comte de Vergennes at Versailles and embarked on his new career as a diplomat. Now, aside from the Navy ships trapped in New England and those shuttling VIPs like Adams, a few ships were actually trying to engage the British Navy. One such ship was the Randolph, captained by Nicholas Biddle. Biddle was the son of a wealthy and prominent merchant family in Philadelphia. At age 13, Biddle took a position aboard a merchant vessel and headed for the West Indies. Seven years later, in 1770, he took a commission in the British Navy as a midshipman. After three years, he resigned his commission to participate in an Arctic expedition to the North Pole. He went along with Skeffington Lutwich, who we met in previous episodes, who was a British naval officer, and another junior officer by the name of Horatio Nelson. When the war began, Biddle offered his services to Pennsylvania. He took command of a small row galley on the Delaware River named the Franklin. In December, he received one of the first commissions as a captain in the new Continental Navy. He commanded the 14-gun Andrew Doria, which was part of the fleet that Commodore Hopkins took to the Bahamas. Now, Biddle was one of the captains who criticized Hopkins' command on that mission. His criticism of the Commodore's competence led, in part, to Congress's censure of Hopkins later that year. And while Hopkins then got trapped in Narragansett Bay, Biddle remained at sea. He sailed as far north as Newfoundland in search of British shipping, and his mission was so successful that he returned with a skeleton crew of only five sailors. The rest had been deployed as prize crews on all the ships that he had captured. Upon his successful return to Philadelphia, Congress rewarded the young captain with the command of the newly completed Randolph. The ship was named after Peyton Randolph, who served as president of the First Continental Congress and for a few months on the Second Continental Congress. Although he had then taken some sick leave, he did return to Congress and then dropped dead while serving in Congress in Philadelphia in October 1775. The Randolph was a 32-gun frigate with a crew of over 300. It was one of America's larger ships, but still nothing that could compete with the British ships of the line. In October 1776, Captain Nicholas Biddle took command of the Randolph. By that time, the 26-year-old Biddle had already spent half of his life at sea. Biddle received his appointment in July 1776, a week after Congress declared independence. 
However, he did not take command of the Randolph until mid-October. His first obstacle was assembling the crew for such a large warship. As I said, most sailors were serving aboard privateers and had no interest in joining the Navy. In order to fill the ship's crew, Biddle had to take on British sailors that were being held as prisoners in Philadelphia. Now, these were not volunteers. The soldiers assigned to escort the new sailors to their ship literally had to fire their guns into the prison windows in order to force the reluctant recruits out of the prison and aboard ship. On the maiden voyage, the Randolph escorted a merchant fleet out of Delaware Bay, with ships headed for France and the West Indies. Having gotten the ships to sea, the Randolph sailed north in search of a British frigate that had been capturing New England merchant ships. While at sea, the new ship faced a number of construction problems. During a storm, the ship's foremast broke off. As the crew attempted a repair, lightning struck the mainmast, causing it to splinter and fall into the ocean. On top of everything else, a fever broke out among the crew, killing some and leaving many more unfit for duty. Around this time, the British sailors, who had become part of the crew unwillingly, attempted to mutiny and take control of the ship. Biddle and his officers were able to restore control and arrest the ringleaders. Eventually, the Randolph made it to Charleston, South Carolina, on March 11, 1777, where she put in for repairs. It took two months to complete the repairs, during which time the ship lost a large portion of its crew to desertion and disease. Biddle had to offer bounties to attract more crew members before they could leave port on August 16th. As they left the harbor, the Randolph boarded another ship, the Fair American, and took off two crew members who had previously deserted the Randolph for work aboard that merchant ship. In early September, the Randolph spotted a 20-gun Loyalist privateer called the True Britain. That ship was traveling with four other ships that it had already captured. The group was on its way to New York with rum, sugar, salt, and other supplies for the British Army. Instead, Biddle captured the entire fleet and delivered the ships to Charleston. After that successful mission, the Randolph remained in Charleston for most of the winter putting itself in dry dock to have its hull scraped for barnacles. In February 1778, the Randolph formed a convoy with four smaller South Carolina Navy ships, the General Moultrie, the Notre Dame, the Fair American, and the Polly. This fleet would attempt to confront British warships that were preventing merchants from leaving Charleston Harbor. The group escorted a fleet of ships leaving the harbor, but failed to find the British. After the merchant ships went on their way, the fleet continued its search for the British Navy. During their searches, they did come across a damaged New England ship that a British privateer was bringing to the British port at St. Augustine. Biddle ended up burning the ship since they could not bring it to port and did not want to let it fall into enemy hands. For more than two weeks, the fleet sailed around, finding nothing. On March 4th, they captured a small schooner from New York that was headed for Granada. Biddle turned that one into a tender ship for his fleet. A few days later, on March 7th, they spotted another ship on the horizon. 
By the time the ship caught up with them that evening, they discovered it was a British ship of the line, the Yarmouth, with 64 guns, twice as many as the Randolph. Also, many of its guns were larger, meaning that they would have a greater range and could do more damage before the Randolph could even get into range. The experienced captain, Nicholas Vincent, would go on to become an admiral in the British Navy. Captain Biddle ordered the other ships to flee while he engaged. He raised his ship's colors and immediately opened fire on the Yarmouth. By at least one account, the Randolph managed to get four broadsides into the Yarmouth, while the British could only return one. One of the ships that had been in the convoy with the Randolph, the 18-gun General Moultrie, also remained to attack the Yarmouth. Unfortunately, the less experienced crew ended up hitting the Randolph by mistake, apparently wounding Captain Biddle in the leg. Biddle remained in command, issuing orders from a deck chair. Despite the setback, the smaller Randolph seemed to be getting the better of the fight, knocking out one of the Yarmouth's masts and damaging her sails. Then, about 15 minutes into the fight, the Randolph suddenly exploded. Presumably, her munitions magazine was either hit or someone somehow set off a spark inside of it. The deafening explosion completely destroyed the ship and its crew. The Yarmouth was close enough to the Randolph that it actually suffered some damage from the explosion as well, and reported chunks of the Randolph, some as large as six feet, crashing onto its deck. A British officer also reported that the Randolph's ensign was flugged onto their ship from the explosion. The Yarmouth then set out after the smaller ships that had fled, but it was too badly damaged to give chase. The British suffered five killed and 12 wounded. Five days after the battle, the Yarmouth came across some wreckage and took aboard four survivors. As it turned out, these men were survivors of the Randolph explosion. The men had survived on rainwater only for several days until rescued. Out of the crew of over 300, those four would turn out to be the only survivors of the Randolph's explosion. Next week, we return to New England to talk about the new Republic of Vermont. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 
to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My continued thanks to Trey Nance and George Davis for their continued support at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to Matthew Domer, Warren Potter, and a generous donation from Brenda Richmond, all who made one-time contributions via PayPal. I do appreciate the support. I also wanted to mention that I recently began setting up a new feature. If you've ever looked at my blog, you know that I have a bunch of further reading at the end of each episode. These include relevant books where I've provided links to Amazon.com. Although Amazon does give me a tiny commission if you click on those links and then buy something, the main reason I started linking to Amazon is that they have the largest selection of books, including many older ones that you can purchase used. So it was mostly out of convenience. Now, a few listeners have expressed dissatisfaction with Amazon because, well, they're a giant conglomerate that's running independent booksellers out of business and screwing independent authors. I certainly get that. Although, I'll admit, as a consumer, I'm probably not going to be giving up Amazon entirely anytime soon. And I am going to still keep the links to Amazon in my blog episode. However, as an option for those of you who want to support independent booksellers, I've also opened a site at bookshop.org. If you're not familiar, this site is designed to give independent booksellers an online platform so that they can join together where they can have a combined inventory that can compete with the big guys. Like Amazon, they offer me a commission on books that I recommend if you purchase through my links. They also give a percentage of all sales to local bookstores. So if you prefer to support local stores but still want to buy online, then bookshop.org is a great resource. I've only started compiling some lists of books, not just from my weekly recommendations, but out of all the books that I've cited on my blog for all of my episodes. So this is hundreds of books. To keep it manageable, I've broken it down into several lists, each covering a different section of the podcast. So, for example, I have one list for my intro episodes and for the French and Indian War. I have another list for the pre-war protest era. Now, that's as far as I've gotten as of the day I'm recording this, but I plan to add another list for each year of the war. So there will be a list for all the 1775 episodes, then another list for all the 1776 episodes, etc. I hope this will make it easy for you to find books relevant to the era that you want. If you want to check out my site on bookshop.org, just go to the site and search for American Revolution Podcast. Make sure you're searching for shops, not books. You can also go directly to bookshop.org slash shop slash ARP. That's A for American, R for Revolution, P for Podcast. I'll also start adding bookshop links to my blog and my website. It will probably take me a few more weeks to get everything added and up to date. If you have any suggestions on how to organize it better or other books to add to the list, please feel free to contact me. So anyway, this week I tried to catch up on the Continental Navy, which admittedly has not been a big player in the overall war effort. 
they went after British supply ships, although more numerous privateers accomplished much more in this area. They transferred VIPs to Europe and elsewhere, as we saw this week with John Adams traveling to France. The Navy did occasionally challenge British warships, as we saw with the Randolph and the Yarmouth. Sadly, in that encounter, as in many, it did not go well for the Americans. The British Navy was good at what it did and would always prove to be a tough opponent. Some of you may be familiar with the name Biddle, which was a prominent family in Philadelphia for many years. Captain Nicholas Biddle sadly died with the loss of the Randolph. The Biddle family, however, remained prominent. They came from English Quakers who settled along the Delaware River even before the founding of Philadelphia. Nicholas had a brother named Edward Biddle, who served as a delegate to the Continental Congress, and another brother, Charles Biddle, who served as vice president of the Supreme Pennsylvania Council, the equivalent of modern-day lieutenant governor. Many of their descendants became politicians and top-ranking military officers. One of the more famous of these descendants was Charles's son, Nicholas, named for his deceased uncle, who went on to become the president of the Second Bank of the United States and an arch-rival of President Andrew Jackson. So, the family's definitely left its mark on American history. This week's episode, though, was about Captain Nicholas Biddle, who served in the Continental Navy and died fighting the British aboard the Randolph. This week's book recommendation is Captain Dauntless, The Story of Nicholas Biddle of the Continental Navy by William Bell Clark. I've recommended books by Clark before. He wrote a really good biography on Lambert Wicks, another naval hero. He's also written a biography about Commodore John Barry and another book on Benjamin Franklin's privateers. Clark definitely liked writing about naval heroes of the American Revolution. The book on Biddle is a little over 300 pages long. It was first published in 1949, although there are reprints out there that are more recent. Even given its age, I still think it's worth reading. If you want to read more generally about the Navy, my online recommendation is an ebook from archive.org. It's called A Naval History of the American Revolution by Gardner Allen. Now, this is an even older book from 1913, but I think it gives a good comprehensive view of the Navy during the American Revolution. As always, you can search for it on archive.org or use the link on my website or blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>